Let's turn our Bibles to the, the end of the Gospel by John. And, uh, well, the last verse of chapter 20. Because there's no book in the Bible that contains the message of salvation uh, better and more clearly than John. And there's no other means of communication that God has chosen for us to understand salvation other than the Word of God. See, God is the last word on salvation. And what I want you to realize is that if you want to know for sure that you're presenting or that you have embraced the gospel that God presents, make sure that you can define it from the Word of God. But as we've been reading through Revelation, you notice that, that Revelation is filled with these groups of seven. And so my first point is God designed the book of Revelation around as a book built around groups of seven. So all the months we've been in Revelation, we've come across all these sevens. There have been seven stars and seven lampstands and seven churches and seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls and seven angels. And you know, we think, oh, that's interesting. Why are they sevens? God is showing groupings, sets of things. There are seven stars. When he talks about three of them, there's still four more. There are seven horns when he talks about one of them, there are six more. It's a set. It's a group. It's, it's, see, seven is not the number of divinity, or it's not the divine number. It's the number of a set in the Bible. There are sevens. They're called heptads. They're sets of things. And so in Revelation, there are all these sets of things. Seven beatitudes and seven spirits and seven mountains and seven lamps and seven horns and seven eyes and seven heads and seven crowns and seven thunders and seven kings and seven last plagues. In fact, there are 54 occurrences of this word seven in the book of Revelation. It's, a, it's a, a structural way for us to know a set that God is stringing out over many chapters, but you're seeing it unfolding and you see all the pieces. Well, what's interesting that John uses sevens not only to explain God's plan about heaven and the church and the end of the world in Revelation, but in the gospel by John where we are this morning, he uses sevens there too. And sometimes we don't notice those because they're not so glaring as they are in the book of Revelation. But he said that there are sets. And as we open to John 20, I want to show you one of the amazing chains of seven truths about salvation. In fact, the gospel by John is also built, actually. The whole structure of the book of John is built around seven events in the ministry of Christ. The Gospel of John has seven titles of Christ in chapter 1. Over the next 14 chapters, it has seven incredible I am's that most of us love. You know, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the divine. Uh, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We, we love those. But there's another group of seven that, starting in verse 31 of the 20th chapter, is seven elements that God designed this book around. And these are the prominent miraculous deeds of Christ that God chose to be special signs that point from just the miracle to something greater than the miracle. See, a lot of times it's easy to just camp on the miracle. I mean, he fed 5,000. But the purpose was not to get us all enamored with how he fed the 5,000. Its point is something greater, something bigger. And that's what the 31st verse tells us. These signs were to help us believe, and as we believe, to help us understand exactly what the salvation, this new life that Jesus gives us is all about. It's very, very important. Well, 
John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word if you have it in front of you. Follow along with me. I want to read what God says is the purpose of this gospel. And I want you to get it lodged in your mind that God tells us what all this beautiful fourth gospel, the gospel by John, what it's all about. And not just what it's about, what's the intended result of people that, that see this and believe this? What's the result God intends in our lives? Verse 30, and truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. See the intentionality there? He did a lot of signs, but the signs that are in this book are all gathered out of all that he did intentionally to point to Jesus Christ and the life he produces when he comes inside of us. Wow. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Dear Father, open our minds to your truth. I pray that we would have faith that's anchored firmly in the truth of your word because faith comes by hearing not stories and not interesting anecdotal uh, accounts, but faith comes by hearing the word of God. And it's the engrafted word that saves our souls. And we don't define what save means. You do. And if you do the saving, you save the way you say you save. And so it is a wonderful thing to have the anchor of your word defining our faith, our life, our hope of our salvation. Teach us much. Uh, minister to our hearts. Help us to respond to your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As you're seated, these signs, and let, let me just walk through this with you because if you look at, at verse 31, what John is saying is all of the gospel writers record Jesus' miraculous works, but God had me pick these specific signs for a purpose, to point to Christ that he's divine and to lead to life. But what's interesting is the word John uses, look in verse 30, because Jesus truly did many other signs. There are two words in the New Testament for sign. There's dunamis, which means power, and, and, and it speaks of a powerful thing that's a powerful sign. Then there's the word semeon, and that would be like all the signs as you're driving around you see, especially the road signs. The road signs are there because they point to, it'll say, stop ahead. Now, the early drivers don't understand, they'll stop at that sign. But the, the real people that know what's going on, they wait for the red one. But they know the red one's coming because the little yellow one says, stop ahead. You understand that the sign points to something that's greater than itself, that's beyond itself. So that's the word semeon is in verse 30. Many other semeons, many other great things that point to something else did Jesus do. But these, and what he's saying is the signs that are recorded in this book, these are written for a purpose. What is a sign? It's something that points beyond itself to something greater. So what John says is, there are seven signposts in this book that point to Christ as our Savior. And it's a complete set. There are seven of them. And they're numbered, and they're in there, and it's clear what they are. 
But when you see Christ as Savior, this is what happens in your life. It's a beautiful set. And, and I just want to go through it real quickly with you this morning. John Bilda's whole gospel is a bridge. And the bridge has seven successive signposts that transport us to the ultimate sign, which is the resurrection in chapter 20. These seven semeon are all before the resurrection to point toward Christ. Not toward the miracle, but toward him. And if you would believe in him, those signs show what will happen inside of our lives. And what's amazing is the signs performed brought those who saw Christ's ministry to belief. And out of the many miracles Christ performed, John just picked seven. Let me show you. Back up to chapter two. And, and remember, because of inspiration, in John chapter two, verse 11, we have God. It wasn't John that thought this up. He was born along, for Romanoi is the Greek word. He was, he was pushed along by the Spirit of God. He went where the Spirit wanted him to go. He wrote what the Spirit inspired him to write. Chapter 2, verse 11. Look, look at this interesting note. This beginning of, and there's the word, semeon. So what the Lord does is, he puts a little marker and says, this is the first one of these I'm talking about in chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31. Here's the first one in chapter 2, verse 11. And of course, you know what precedes that is the water into wine. Now, turn over to chapter 4 and verse 54, because I want to show you how significantly marked these are. These seven signs in the book of John are given in a specific order. If you look at 454, it says, this again is the second semeon, second signpost. But the signpost isn't the attempt, it's pointing to something. And each of these signs marked a, a very big miracle. Turning water into wine was a big miracle. Healing the nobleman's son was a big miracle. But that wasn't what they were marking. They were pointing to something, the miracle worker and what he wanted to do. And so that's the, the, the bigger picture. They prove Christ's deity, but they also portray a beautiful picture of our salvation. So let's just survey the seven signs. And you could spend, you could spend a, a, a seven weeks studying each of these. But let me just tell you what they are. Uh, the first three signs show how salvation comes to the sinner in quick order. The first three of these signs. Uh, in chapter 2, turning the water into wine, Jesus shows that salvation is miraculous. Um, you say, making wine is miraculous, making it instantly is. I mean, it takes time, fermentation, it takes a process, and, and it occurs. But Jesus took plain water and instantaneously, miraculously transformed it. So, so that's the miracle. What's the miracle pointing at? Well, he's pointing at the fact that he's Lord of time and creation. Nothing exists apart from him. He can create anything he wants at any moment. But the, the focus of Christ's ministry is not to go around and make stones into bread and water into wine. That wasn't his, his purpose. His purpose was to show he can make dead sinners come alive. See, uh, and I mean, what a, I wish I could teach on this because, you know, it's such a, a beautiful picture. The world's the world's joys always run out. Remember the party was going along, they says, oh, we've run out of wine. That's how life is. And, and by the way, the harder you live, the sooner the joys run out. And so they found the pots and they're empty and most people are empty and useless. I mean, you could just see all the pictures in this. And Jesus comes along 
and fills them up full and miraculously on the inside of those pots transforms. And, and what he's saying is, if you let me get into your life, your joys will never run out. You'll never be empty. I mean, it's just beautiful. Okay, but the next one, look at chapter 4, verse 46. The healing of the nobleman's son. Salvation is by faith. This guy comes rushing up to Jesus and said, my, you know, my servant is sick and he's far away, and can you come to him? Jesus said, no, I'm not coming. And the guy's undaunted. He said, help me. Jesus said, go home. Your servant's well. Boom. He takes off. His, his servants come to him, and, and they say, he's healed. And the man says, what time did that occur? And he remembers exactly when Jesus told him. And, and what that miracle is about is, Jesus can do anything anywhere. He's not limited by space and time, but salvation comes not only as a miracle, chapter 2, it only comes by faith. It's totally of God. It's believing what God said he'd do. It's not us doing something. See, people get all mixed up. Whenever you ask them if they're saved, they go, well, I, uh, let's see, I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this. That's, that's bad to find that in the testimony. The testimony should be what God, I believe what God said he'd do, and he has begun that good work. He did it. I didn't. I didn't begin that. He began the good work in me. The third one is in chapter 5, and I mean, this one is even more beautiful. He heals the paralytic. This guy's laid for all those years, you know, totally unable to move down on the little pallet, and he's all twisted and can't take care of himself, and he's been plopped there and, and um, you know, helpless, and Jesus healed him. Jesus came to him. See, salvation is by grace. We're like the guy laying on the pallet, totally unable to do anything. Jesus comes to us and says, do you want me to heal you? The man said, yep. Jesus said, okay, get up. Boom. That's grace. The guy didn't work out and try real hard and strengthen those legs. It was a gracious miraculous work of God. He accepted by faith. Now, uh, the next four signs show the results of salvation. The first three is how you get saved. It's by faith. It's miraculous. It's by grace. The last four, the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, salvation brings satisfaction. Jesus is the bread of life. I mean, all those people were so hungry, he fed them so much that the disciples had to pick up 12 basketfuls. I mean, everybody gorged themselves, and there was 12 big baskets left. That means that Jesus completely satisfies. See, one of the evidences of salvation is that endless restlessness that characterizes unsaved people goes away. And, and it, replacing it is perfect peace. It says in Isaiah that the wicked are like the restless sea, foaming up their own shame. They're just endlessly pursuing something else, and they're restlessly looking for it. But the work of righteousness, Isaiah says, is peace. And the effects of righteousness are quietness and assurance forever. That's the salvation God brings. And that's the, the first result of salvation. The second one is also in chapter 6, when Jesus calmed the storm. You remember that, 16 through 21 of chapter 6. Disciples are in the boat. Jesus is on the water. They're sinking, and Peter walks out to Jesus, and Jesus comes into the boat, and the, and the storm stops. 
You know what they all wanted? Get out of the boat. We don't want you in here. Scared them to death because whoever had seen someone that could walk on water, talk to the wind, and make water calm. I mean, it, it overwhelmed them. But what Jesus was showing them was, he's the Lord of everything. No disease, no storm, no demon, no problem, not even death stands in his way. And what he talks about there is salvation brings peace. Jesus is Lord of everything. And then let, let's get to our chapter, because that's where we're supposed to be this morning. Uh, in the elder prayer, someone prayed and he says, help the pastor not to get distracted. Well, there's just so much here, it's hard not to get distracted. It's like going into the store to buy one thing. When you're hungry, everything looks good, right? And so, uh, but chapter nine is where we want to be. This is the healing of the blind man. And what it says in the first seven verses is salvation brings light. Now, the story is this guy was blind from birth. What a perfect picture of how all of us came into this world. We were all born blind to God. Boy, we can see everything else. We can see every sin and everything else we want, but we can't see him. And, and so this picture is salvation brings light and spiritual sight. And then, by the way, if you're counting, that was the sixth one. The seventh one is raising Lazarus from the dead. And, and what salvation brings to us is life. We live, it says in the book of Hebrews, after the power of an endless life. Uh, another witnessing time I'll never forget is when Bonnie and I were sitting, eating dinner. We ate dinner for two hours once. We were backpacking in Europe, and we spent all of our money um, on meals because we slept on the trains. And, um, and we found this little place, and we ate for two hours, and we sat and talked. And we were reading the Bible and everything, and finally someone came from a nearby table and stood at our table and said, can we sit with you? And we said, sure, why? And they said, because we've watched you eat for two hours, and you have a level of tranquility we have looked for our whole life. I said, well, sit down. Who are you? And she said, my name is Manisa Riza Shah Pahlavi. I said, great, who's that? She says, my, my father is the Shah of Iran. I said, whoa, you've had a lot of places to look for peace and tranquility and haven't found it, eh? She said, no. And we shared the simple gospel that Jesus brings life and light and peace and satisfaction. Okay, these seven signs, all of them point from the miracle to the Savior who's the one that saves and what salvation does. And by the way, each one of these signs uh, points to Christ in his work in believers. Now, just for those of you that like to study, in, in each of these signs, after Jesus performs the miracle, he usually preaches a sermon about what he just did. In chapter five, when he healed that man that was laying there for 38 years, he says, you think that's great? He says, when I talk, people in the grave can hear my voice. And if you hear my voice in the grave and you've died in your sins, you're going to go to judgment. If you hear my voice in the grave and you have trusted in me, I will give you endless life. And all of a sudden, the people went, whoa. He is the one who's the judge of all things. Chapter 6, when he fed everybody, he got done feeding them. They were very happy sitting there in little groupings on the ground. And Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. The food you ate is going to go away. If you eat from me, you'll never hunger. You'll never, ever be empty again. You know what it says at the end of chapter 6 after that big sermon he gave? It says most of the people stopped following him. They said, his salvation is too hard. We don't want it. That troubles me because nowadays people try and present a salvation that offends no one. You know, I was a trained evangelist. I've gone to evangelism school. I know how to give invitations. You want an invitation? I know how to give an invitation. I was trained for months how to give an invitation. I know how to make everybody come forward. 
you sing long enough and say enough stuff and talk and you can, you can, and you, you have a few people stand in the back and at, at propitious times they start walking forward. It kind of gets people to go forward. That's not the salvation God talks about. When Jesus presented salvation, most people walked out. They didn't like it. Why? Because he told them the truth. He didn't emotionally lure them into something that they make a momentary decision that the birds peck away and they live like the devil the rest of their life thinking they got saved. He front-loaded the gospel and says, you believe on me. When he told that eager, rich, young ruler about salvation, that guy ran to him and said, I want to be saved. Jesus says, great, come on. Uh, leave everything behind and follow me. The guy said, are you kidding? I'm not going to leave all my stuff behind. I just want to add you to my life. I don't want to change my life. Jesus said, okay, you can go. He didn't say, okay, I'll change it for you. See, we have a different view of salvation many times than Christ did. Well, basically, these signs point to Christ. And what Jesus said is, there are two types of people alive today. He says that there are those who are spiritually blind and those who are spiritually seeing. So according to Jesus, you can divide the whole world and everybody you know into one of two groups. Those who are in the darkness, spiritually blind, that's how they were born, and those who at some point since their birth have had a miraculous transformation, an eye transplant, which the Bible calls a heart transplant, which means suddenly we can spiritually begin to see. So there's only two kinds of people. There aren't half, I mean, you would think that there's some people that have, you know, they have one good eye and one bad eye. No, the Lord does not do that. Either you see or you don't. That's the mighty miracle of salvation. And these seven signs Jesus gives in John's gospel are all about salvation and having life in Christ. And, and in our passage, Jesus describes the process, and it's, it's really beautiful. So let's, let's just center in on the ninth chapter, and I won't run all over the place, okay? The sixth sign miracle in John 9, the miracle is Jesus heals a man that was born blind 38 years. That's the miracle. What's the message? Well, the message is salvation is when we go from sightlessness to seeing Christ. Now, look at verse 35 of chapter 9. Jesus is now, and if you're keeping track, this is the 14th gospel presentation, you could call it, in the book of John. We've already seen the other 13 in the weeks past. This is now the 14th one. And what happens here is a believer in the gospel, according to Jesus, is someone who worships Christ as the one who gave them sight. They realize that they were born blind and hopelessly unable to find him. They were blind, sitting in the darkness, headed for destruction, Luke 1, 78 and 79 says. And Jesus comes, shines the light on them, and gives them eyes to see and they open those eyes and see him and never turn back from following him. That's the gospel. And what's so interesting is, Jesus, well, look how he explains it, verse 35. And Jesus heard they had cast him out. See, this guy, Jesus heals him, and they didn't like him in the synagogue talking about Jesus, so they threw him out in verse 34. And when he had found him, verse 35, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? Then he said, Lord, I believe, verse 38, and worshiped him. Why did he do that? Because Jesus said, I'm the one that opened your eyes. 
I'm the son of God. You see, this man, his evidence of salvation is, as soon as he understood who the savior, who the life giver, who the sight giver was, he worshiped him. It, it became the focus of his life. Verse 39, and Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not, do not see may see. In other words, those who realize they're spiritually blind and need a savior, I will give them sight. Those, keep reading the, the second part, and those who see may be made blind. Remember Mark said that, that there are three things when he was talking about the tracks, three things that could happen. One is the person could trust in Christ. The second thing is they'll say, I'll think and pray about that. You know what the third one is? They'll reject you. They say, I don't, and they'll tear it up. I don't want anything to do. They'll wad up, throw it away, and say, I don't believe. That's false and all that. Look what Jesus said, that those who see, they, they believe in their blindness that they don't need any sight. They think they can see. They'll be made blind. You know what? There, there is something about the repeated rejection of the gospel. It says in the book of Hebrews, while you hear his voice, don't harden your heart because you harden it too many times. You'll never hear his voice again. You get, it's kind of like practice shooting without your, your ear covers. Gradually, you can shoot all day long. You don't hear anything. And people hear the gospel. They don't hear anything anymore. They've been overstimulated in their rejecting of the light. Look at verse 41. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin, but now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. See, what happened is the blind man who Jesus came to and, and he healed him, that man came back to Christ, or Jesus found him and showed himself to him, and his sins were forgiven. But those people who didn't want Christ and they didn't want to hear about him and they didn't want their eyes open, they died in their sins. And so it's a very beautiful picture. Okay, the miracle of this blind man seeing portrays the grace of God and salvation. I want you to think about the steps of salvation before we go. We only have eight minutes left, okay? Number one, the blind man. This, this is a portrait of the grace of God and salvation. Number one, that blind man couldn't have seen Jesus. That guy couldn't find Jesus. You could have let him wander all over Jerusalem. He would have never found Jesus. We can't find Jesus on our own. We weren't born into this world becoming Jesus lookers. There's no way we could see him. This man wouldn't have known Jesus if he'd have walked right by him. He wouldn't have had any idea about who Jesus was because he was blind. Number two, God's grace dominates the whole miracle. This man isn't running into Jesus' pathway saying, oh Lord, heal me, heal me, heal me. No, Jesus saw him, stops for him, opens his eyes. See, salvation, Jonah 2.9, is of the Lord. God initiates. Remember in Genesis 3 when, when Adam and Eve fell into sin? Who came looking for whom? Did they start a posse looking for God? They hid. God came looking for them. That's the story of salvation. It's God's grace dominates the whole miracle. It's Christ seeking us. We could not see him except he saw us first. We were all born blind. We're absolutely blind. We have no capacity to see God. We have no capacity to see Jesus Christ. We're incapacitated. So that's, that's the first point. You know what the second point is? Look at chapter 8, verse 59. You know, most of us comfortably read the Bible by chapters. And so today we're going to read chapter 9. Do we bother to read the last verse of the prior chapter to know what's going on? Most often we don't have time. 
What does it say in verse 59? They took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple and through the midst of them and passing by. And as Jesus passed by, do you notice it's the very same story continuing in chapter 9, verse 1. Remember, those are arbitrary divisions. Robert S. D. N. as he was, and, and Bishop Langton, both divided the manuscript of the scripture, one in the 13th century and the other in the 16th century, one into verses and the other into chapters, arbitrarily. It has nothing to do with inspiration. So a lot of times to understand, you've got to look prior. But what am I saying all that for? I'm saying Jesus had time for this blind man. Did you think about that? This is the most precious and striking and beautiful truth in the whole account. Jesus had time for the blind man. Jesus is running for his life. He's running to get away from being stoned. He's at the end of the, the, the situation in chapter 8 where they've all got stones in their hands. And Jesus is never too busy to stop and to gather up a blind sinner and bring him to faith. You know, that's Christ. I mean, it reminds me of the cross. Here's Jesus pulling himself up to get another breath, you know, and dying of asphyxiation little by little. And he has time to turn and embrace this thief on the cross next to him and take him to paradise. See, that's, that is amazing. Well, what, what does this man born blind tell us? He tells us about our inability in Christ, availability and ability to save us. This guy is unable to save himself. This man born blind is a good illustration of sin as there is anywhere in the New Testament because it's the character of blindness that makes total incapacity to see what we need spiritually. We are blind to see our spiritual need. We can't recognize God, we can't recognize truth, we can't recognize Christ. We're blind to spiritual reality and we didn't seek him. He sought us. That's why this, is, this ninth chapter is a gold mine of understanding. And that's why Jesus did one of his little sign miracles here because he wants us to know, to look beyond the little event and to see the bigger message of how great salvation is. This is how grace works. Lost man who's blind sees no God, sees no Christ, sees no truth, sees no love, sees nothing. Jesus comes along, looks at the blind man with compassion in his heart, with love in his heart, comes over, offers grace and spiritual life and light to that man, and the man is saved. You notice it isn't what the man did that saved him. It's what Christ did and his response. Now, this is really interesting. Salvation is beautifully portrayed by this miracle. Let me show you what I mean, because there's an element. I mean, if you stop and think about this very long, this is an incredible story. Number one, Jesus found the blind beggar. That's an illustration of grace. Jesus had every reason to pass by the man. It was the Sabbath day. Jesus should be resting instead of, you know, healing. The disciples were speculating about whether the... Did you notice in the backdrop what the disciples are doing? They're going, hmm, I think he sinned. No, his parents sinned. They didn't even care about the guy. They're speculating about him. Jesus is drawn to this blind man. That's an illustration of grace. Secondly, Jesus made the blind beggar want to be clean. That's an illustration of conviction. Do you remember the story? What does Jesus do to the guy? He gets, he spits, picks up a handful of dirt that's moist. Have you ever gotten something in your eye, like an eyelash, 
a speck of dust. You know how much that hurts? You'll pull the car over if, you know, you just, your eyes water and you can't see and you're just, everybody's looking at you. How would you like someone to put a handful of dirt right into your eyes? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus pressed into his eyes dirt. And he said, you want to be clean? And see, go wash that out. That's a picture of conviction. That is opposite of how we share the gospel. We, we try and pull the string so lightly they feel they're never being pulled. Jesus pushes the dirt right into their eyes. It, it's a different way of presenting the gospel that Jesus did. Even the smallest speck of dirt will irritate, irritate our eyes. Can you imagine how a handful of clay pushed into his eyes must have felt? But that dirt irritating his eyes prompted him to go wash. That's what happened when God's word is preached. It irritates the souls of sinners with God's conviction so that they want to do something about their sin. Do you ever wonder why on the day of Pentecost, when Peter was preaching along, the people were cut to the heart and said, what must we do? That is how God saves people, when they see their dirt and they feel the pain of their sin. Well, Jesus created sight for the blind beggar. That's an illustration of regeneration. So Jesus found him as grace. Jesus uh, makes him want to be clean. That's conviction. And then Jesus gives him sight. That's regeneration. This man proved his faith in Christ by being obedient to the word. You know, religion today offers a substitute for salvation, but Jesus Christ alone is the only one that can deliver anyone from the blackness and darkness of sin. You know what, when you read this, do you know what, there's just one response. And I, and I thought of an old hymn, Hallelujah, what a Savior. That's, that's what I think. He comes looking for us, sees us helpless, hopeless, dark, blind, totally unable. He comes to us, ask us if we want to have life and we say yes and so he makes us aware of our sin and we want to be washed and he gives us sight that's a miracle and that's salvation let's all stand for a word of prayer and as you stand i want to remind you that at every service the invitation is open and there will be at the end of this service uh elders and titus two women who have the word of god and and if you say you know what I've been saved, but I, something is wrong. I am not operating that way. I am dissatisfied, I'm restless, and I need help. They would love to help. Actually, they can't help you, but Christ can, but they would love to point you in prayer and in Scripture to Him. Or some of you say, I, am, I've, I can't see at all. I, I, want, I want Jesus to give me sight. I've never been saved they'd love to lead you to Christ too. Or, you know what's neat? You don't even have to come to the front. Jesus actually is here this morning. He's actually right near every one of us. And you can cry out to him right where you are and say, uh -huh. wash my eyes, I can't see. Wash away my sin. Give me sight. Or help me start again. I've messed up again. Whatever the need is, he's right here. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the grace of God that brings salvation. Thank you that you came looking for us. We had no capacity to look for you. 
Thank you that you reached down, pressed the mud of our sin into our eyes and convicted us of our need that only you could meet. And then we responded in faith to you. And you washed away every sin, past, present, and future, and you have given us spiritual sight. I pray for anyone who has never had the miracle of salvation, that they wouldn't let this thought pass them, that your spirit would convict and draw them to yourself, and that today they would cry out to you, and that you would give them sight. And when they see you, they'll be so joyous, they'll never turn back, because they'll see you the king in your beauty. And I pray that you bless us tonight as we sort out what do we do with all these people that that say they're Christians. How does the Bible say we're supposed to categorize our ministry to them? And I pray that you would equip us to that end. And we thank you for this time in the precious name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen. God bless you as you go. 